This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Joris Peels again, editor-in-chief of 3dprint.com. And I'm here once again, as always, with Maxwell Bogue, who's the uh, co-inventor of the uh, 3D printing pen of the 3D Oodler. And we're joined today by Greg. Oh, hi. Hi, Max. <laughs> Hello. And uh, we're joined today by uh, Greg Paulson. And Greg Paulson from Zometry. Uh, and uh, Greg was with us in a previous episode as well. And, uh, we, yeah, we all really liked uh, talking together and stuff. So Greg uh, wanted to be back on the show again. So um, we, we thought it would be a great idea to talk again uh, with Greg about uh, all sorts of things. And our subject for today is just looking at some 3D printing trends. So... Um, Greg uh, was looking at, at what he thinks are the main trends that are going on at the moment, and he made some predictions for 2020. And essentially, he's got four trends that he wants to focus on. One is additive process control software on the rise. So we're talking about additive process control software. We're talking about uh, software such as EOState or Streamix. And so we're talking about software that goes a lot further than just you know telling you that a build is going to be done in 12 hours, but it, it monitors the build, it monitors the melt pool, it monitors... Uh, the size and shape of the things. It can give you some closed loop control, maybe. It can give you the kind of qualifications, the information you need uh, if you're going to be making stuff for aerospace. Uh, and then uh, the trend number two that he wants to focus on is increased isotropic print possibilities. So more chances of making isotropic parts. It's a big failing in 3D printing, of course, that, that because we build up layer by layer, parts tend to come apart at these layers. So you know, engineers apparently don't like that. Um, and so that would be good if we did have some uh, more isotropic parts. Uh, the third thing I want to talk about is novel materials, so new materials, new processes coming in. And the fourth thing is, uh, yeah, just hybrid 3D printing technology. So combining uh, 3D printing technology with with another uh, technology. Like, for example, metal printing, it's common now, or well, it's common to at least be aware of uh, CNC combined with uh, the metal printing to cut away the supports, for example, and finished parts. So that's what we're going to be talking about today with, uh, with Greg. And uh, welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, thanks so much. And yeah, happy to be on for a second time. I, I think I, I'm happy to have a more controlled conversation about the trends in the industry because uh, you and I, I think, geeked out on episode 11 uh, and just went everywhere on like really cool topics and, and being able to actually focus at like a laser and look at what's what is this future looking like is is just really exciting for me and you know something i i like writing about i like talking about um yeah so first of all so about this uh, so we're talking about software mm -hmm. like eostate so that's a software on eos machines uh that's like you know we're, we're seeing a trend I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on this one i mean i think that there is a trend that you need it if you want to make parts for airbus for boeing they need to know what batch of material is used that batch needs to be flame tested. Uh, that bat they need to know the orientation. They need to know the uh, the temperature. They need to know everything. So, so if we're going to be making aerospace stuff, we need this process control monitoring software. So, I totally agree with you on this first trend. Yeah, and and uh, and by the way, like I mean, I'm you know, our prosometry, we have this you know platform agnostic uh, uh, site essentially for manufacturing, and uh, we're AS ninety one hundred, which is a aerospace. Uh, certification that basically says that the controls that we have in place and the repeatability that we have in place uh, fall under this standard level, like a minimum level of traceability that's that's qualified for aerospace marketplace. And when I cut metal, so if I'm doing CNC machining, 
I uh, I can tell you with fair certainty where that material came from. That raw stock, say seventy seventy five aluminum, um, you know where it was, uh, you know where the material was actually extruded out and all the processing through. I can cut it, and I know that that billet has a certain property to it. And so whatever I'm cutting away doesn't affect the billet other than maybe some heat properties to it. And then I can give a minimum level of certification saying I cut it to this spec, I measured it this spec, it's made out of this material, your engineering properties are X. And it's you know very nice uh, knitted system because that's what's been established in the industry. And then when you have additive manufacturing, it's a little bit different because I'm taking a essentially a, an amorphic raw material like resin or powder or, uh, you know, sometimes like it's a, you know, pre-prepped like extruded filament or rod uh, material like we're seeing in some of these uh, new metal platforms. And then I'm putting into the shape. So there's a lot of stuff that happens, like the heat and temperature of the machine, the, uh, the actual um, pathway that either the laser is scanning to fuse those layers together or the, uh, or, uh, you know, UV curing or the, um, the actual extrusion of that material all those things can actually change physical properties. So I no longer have this kind of easy button for right. uh, what's happening. And I also know print by print, you know, a, a subtle difference can actually make a change in the same part, even sometimes with the same parameter sets. So I, I, I'm talking about this in the CNC market and the, in the additive market, this idea of the virtual machine, which is how can I pre-prep to help mitigate a uh, uh, mitigate a problem via software and then also how can i do insight to uh, monitoring so first off just is it working like you know is it to your point like uh, when you're talking about the uh, state and these other ones you're looking and monitoring uh the actual performance of the print to call out if there's a defect it's not going to say the print stopped or it's not going to say like you know the print failed it just says hey there's something to take a look at and we can go back and do a failure analysis that comes through uh and you know, kind of the future is taking these individual packages like build prep software, uh, the uh, software for insight monitoring and turning it into a essentially a hardware as a platform. So the hardware combined with the software gives me these advanced corrections, advanced traceability and kind of to the point of the billet, like a minimum qualified level of results that are acceptable for the industry. That's a mouthful, but yeah, uh, it's huge. <laughs> what I could see it not just in aerospace, but as well in like medical and stuff like that. Anywhere where you have to track from beginning to end and you need to have a good idea of level of accuracy uh, and know that there's a defect. Is that acceptable? That, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's even more complicated, I think, than you're describing because, so first off, we're not very good at describing 3D files. We're not exactly taking the so oh, yeah. it starts with like a bit of a problem. It starts with the fact that we all have different CAD packages. Then we take this SDL, which is like the worst idea ever. It doesn't even have a unit, right? It's literally the most hated thing in 3D printing is yeah. the base file that we use to 3D print. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But it doesn't even have a unit in it. So the the, the fun thing is always that you then print out some parts in the wrong millimeters and inches and all this. Um, but it, it doesn't describe the geometry very well. So it starts off with the with, with 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 these triangles, you know, being used as an approximation of a CAD file, and that whole that translation process into SDL and from SDL to G code is 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 also failure prone. And I've seen uh, uh, tests, I've done tests where we've we've tried to reconstruct different G code and different files with different 
uh, 3D softwares, different uh, slicers and stuff, and we end up with different files. And we end up with completely different parts. Uh, and we end up, like you said, with different properties. So it starts a little bit earlier, I think, also in just the authoring of the file and how we get that file into 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 production even. Like even before it hits you guys, you know, all sorts of weird things have happened to it. And and that's uh -huh. why right right now, like post processing, like uh, just for assurance, if I'm doing a flight flight part, mm -hmm. uh, it, in say metal printing, I'm probably going to use something like hot isostatic processing, mm -hmm. which is a thermal treatment, which basically says you made the net shape, good job. I'm mm -hmm. now going to heat the crap out of this material and recrystallize mm -hmm. it in its form yeah. again because it gives a minimum level of guarantee that uh, some of these properties that are inherent on a layer by layer basis are mm -hmm. essentially mitigated because you're you're recentering almost uh, mm -hmm. to that. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a whole it's a whole ecosystem. So if we're looking then beyond that, I mean, you know, also we got the pre-deformation thing where we're adding mm -hmm. material which we then will remove. Right, or we're compensating for that, and that's also a setting that 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 is machine dependent, um, material dependent in a lot of cases as well, uh, and that could also be different in different geometries and things like that. So, I, you know, personally, I'm just always like, you know, okay, so we're changing a lot in in the settings, like we we got machines with 32 or more, 64 or more settings, and and all of those have an effect on how that part is going to be built up, and then we have post processing, and isn't it so, you know. Don't I have to monitor up until QA, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that I've had this before as well. All of a sudden, all your SLS parts end up being soapy, right? Different, you know, they end up coming out like really soapy, kind of weird. And that has to do with the the, the temperature and the humidity of the room when they're where you're processing right. it. And so, you know, it's great that we'd have quality assurance, whatever, on the machine or closed loop control or whatever. If my part is then going to change because it it sucks up air, water, whatever, then then it's going to yeah, then that's going to change as well. So don't we need to then include this whole, uh, you know, post machining step as well, and everything beyond that? Yeah, the the handling of the of the part afterwards is just as important. And honestly, again, we we're talking on a very high, like we're talking on like one percent need manufacturing mm -hmm. right now for metal parts, which is then that aerospace, defense, medical, these niche industries that have there's so much liability in mm -hmm. that single part if it's a functional part that you need to have full traceability and confidence that what you're what you're giving to your customer like and again I'm talking as a service here uh, meets these minimum qualifications and if not that you're communicating with them so they understand the process in which you're ordering uh, uh, can we can we geek out, geek out on a uh, velo 3d really quick uh, sure. uh, okay all right uh, I, I've been um, uh, you know, I am a fan of software, and I think mm -hmm. everything that I talk about always begins with like we have some really great established processes. Uh, but uh, being able to augment that with software and doing these moderated new new sensors, mm -hmm. especially because sensors are getting cheaper and they're getting more accessible, and you can just throw them everywhere. Uh, Velo 3D, uh, you know, they have a lot of marketing uh, out right now, but you know, I'm 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 drinking the Kool Aid on it. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, it's a really great technology. Uh, it is doing exactly what you're talking about. So it's doing that virtual machine saying, I know my platform. You know, I know that's running this in Canel material. Um, I know the characteristics of it. You put in your file to a build prep software and it will predict on a layer by layer basis how the part will form and to your mm -hmm. point, do some pre-deformation uh, mm -hmm. behind that. And by it's kind of tweaking how the part will form, what may deform, what may flake up, what uh, um, what could be issues, um, they've created kind of an ecosystem where they could start to reduce 
the need for things like support structure uh, mm -hmm. into in the platform. It's not a hundred percent reduction, by the way. I've seen some parts that have been free floating, but they really have like a beard to them, like a, mm -hmm. where there's a piece of geometry that looks almost like an icicle, and it starts up with you know a few grains being centered that layer, the next layer it's double that, next layer it's double that, and then builds up on itself until it's there. So it has some free floating, but you have to you have to engineer it to make it happen. But overall, it can mitigate some of these support needs. Because the support a lot of times is not just creating a place for a feature to actually exist, like, you know, where gravity may hold it down. In a powder bed process, you do have powder there. But so a supported powder bed processes is often because of a thermal um, crystallization or stress that gets built in that in the effort of centering. So that laser, that power is being put on the build bed. It's making these these uh, this metal kind of peel up like aluminum foil, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, if I don't have support structure there, It'll curl up. My recoder blade will actually slide across, drag that feature, maybe ruin my whole part, or at least right. create a create a situation in which you know, I can run a very long build and have a section of my part not exist because there's nothing. I kill my support underneath it, and then nothing builds on top of it, uh, or I should say something's building on top of it, but it keeps on getting dragged into the overflow bin. Yeah. So it's you know, it's, it's like it's like, it's like 10, 10 millimeters to the left as well. Yeah, exactly. So like yeah. You're kind of like leaning tower piece apart. It's like, oh great, I'm so yeah. glad this is a 1.5 million euro machine. It, it, exactly. <laughs> like when you're talking about, you're talking about <laughs> the price to build parts. Uh, so yeah, I, I think like the build is like 20k or something. It's like, oh okay, that's cool. Yeah. Thanks. So I, <laughs> I think Velo also, one of the things they do is they have kind of a more of a floating recoder system too. So they actually are okay in their system allowing a little bit of that peel to happen. Uh, happen. Um, so it's, they're, they're knowing that instead of saying, oh, this is a property of this process, so it's a defect. They're saying this is a property of the process, so maybe we should treat it like a property of the process. And, uh, and creating, creating like a, little, a different way to recode so you don't get the drag um, I'm not saying it's a perfect process. I haven't actually run the machines myself, but I'm very excited because conceptually I understand how these powder bed fusion processes work and where you run the pitfalls. And um, I think it's a very refreshing approach to uh, really DMLS, DMLM uh, platforms. And, you know, it's just something that I, one last note that I wanted to talk about on uh, this, uh, on basically the software on the rise is I know like multi-step fusion machines have a nice little IR camera right in the middle. And they're doing some of this feedback loop and monitoring of the, um, of this, of the build as it's going through. So it's, it's very exciting because, uh, you know, typical machines like SLS machines usually just have like one little IR sensor that's just saying, all right, right about here, I'm gonna keep on controlling my temperature and give a feedback loop here. But um, on HP machines is an IR camera that's looking at the scope of the platform and uh, and looking at po potential differences in the heat bed from the outer side to the inner side, because what what you find is that there's different heat zones um, on your um, on your machine, and they have uh, you know different heat areas where they could actually uh, activate those. But even more, this sensor can actually can actually be connected to the web. And if you think about all the HP machines in the world running, all of a sudden you have a feedback loop where you're getting really big amounts of data. Um, and scan data and performance data, and you're actually able to, as a whole, like again, thinking about this. Not as this is my tool, this is my machine, but this is a platform in which parts are made. Uh, this this feedback loop can actually help better the parameter sets in the first place for future builds. So the same machine bought today versus that same machine bought last year probably pre performs better based off this insight to feedback loop that is kind of distributed across the platform. That's exciting. 
Let's talk okay. about uh, isomorphic, yeah. isotropic yeah. printing possibilities. Yeah, I think, I think the, so it was always a problem. It was always like the first thing that you would, the, when you were trying to introduce this process into a company, they would say, it's not, a, the parts aren't isotropic, we can't work with it. And they would just shut you down. This was the biggest problem in the beginning, trying to get the functional parts like years ago. It was just like, it was just kind of this reflexive, it's not isotropic, and then, yeah, you're dead, right? Because it'll rip apart between the layers, you'll have some kind of, uh, Delamination or whatever you call it, and then and then the part's going to fail. So we don't like that. We can't abide by it. So, you know, typically I think there's again we have to talk about MFJ or multi-jet fusion again because that's potentially also gives us more uh, isotropy. And then and there's DLP and there's some DLP options as well that I think uh, are, are also potentially uh, DLP SLA options that are also giving us more uh, in terms of like a predictability in that, that field as well. I think it's exciting. I don't. I've never seen it as so much of a problem as other people have because I've always seen it as kind of like, yeah, this is kind of the, the, the way the process works, the way the cookie crumbles, and we can actually predict where the part will fail, and we can engineer that a part fails in a certain way. So why not use that as a new quality of this part, you know, rather than you know, worry too much of it. Like, I've never really seen the value of replicating the CNC universe. I've always seen the value of saying, we're going to make things and certain things in a new way. And only the things that will make sense will do. I don't need to do all of the CNC stuff. <laughs> it, it depends on what you're going to use the part for at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. Like, so. yeah, but to me, it's like anything that has value can be 3D printed. So anything that, then to me, anything that, that, that touches you in some way that has to be unique, like a hearing aid, like a hip cup, like a unique golf grip, because if you're into golf, right? Um, or unique uh, headphones because you're like a big headphone guy, that to me is going to be the 3D printing stuff. And that's where also the long-term business value is going to be. I'm not going to make Happy Meal toys. Why the hell would I care, right? I mean, uh, that's not a big, good business model. So right? so you, you, yeah. and I, you and I are about a decade ahead in loving yeah. the layers, right? So like, yeah. so when you live in the industry, you immediately see the value of of mm -hmm. printed parts even even from basic printers uh, all the way up to you know the more you know more complex uh platforms out there but we we inherently and like i said i've spent over a decade teaching this and especially at zometry like uh um teaching and educating on all these different technologies we we offer seven 3d printing technologies and i can guarantee you that no single like almost none of our customers have used all of them and know all of them know that no uh what they're about. I think that's where the challenge is, is absolutely you can love the layers, love the properties. Uh, but when you have choices out there, and some of these choices are better uh, for your furry application, it all depends on your, your CAD geometry. Um, it depends on your the, the application behind it. And uh, when you have someone, for example, that orders something with snap tabs and ABS, they may not realize that those tabs are going to break instantly, because mm -hmm. those tabs are being built vertical into Z. Uh, based mm -hmm. on that geometry of the part. So isotropic pro features uh, for me is more of a quality and customer service application uh, sometimes for those who are new to this because it's it's giving um, it's giving a minimum level of confidence. Again, I'm going to use that a lot because that's why I call it data sheets. Is that, that's my minimum level of, of guarantee that I could give you is the data sheet there. And you're getting... Um, Regardless of the geometry you're putting, as long as you're doing, you know, uh, design for features to to a basic extent, you're going to get these type of properties uh, without a direction concern. Um, carbon DLS, uh, and you're talking about DLP printers. Like there's, uh, there are new technologies that are scanning first off layers all at once, uh, so that they are 
you're getting a single kind of fusion effect for those layers. And Carbon does uh, something where they also have a unique way where they could actually continuously grow the parts. So the build platform is continuously moving as essentially instead of thinking image by image, layer by layer scan, a video is running. Now I have carbon parts on my desk and I, you do see some layer effects, but what it does by that continuous cure is gives a kind of a, a minimum level of isotropic uh, effects. And uh, some, something that I was writing about was sometimes isotropic is not just like how it cures, does it cure all at once or do I do like a secondary process like hips on metal parts to get those effects. Sometimes it's also, can I trick my, my material into acting isotropic, even though it's a layer by layer process. And I, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I had, you know, rise, fortify and essentium, which have like three FDM methods mm -hmm. of essentially adding a secondary process step or bonding agent to, uh, create more adhesion and Z than you would get naturally on the de deposition. And I, I don't know, like, have you, do you have like, a, are you a fan of any of those, uh, techs or like, have you had hands on with those? Yeah. So to me, I think. I think about this differently. I think, you know, we want to produce the parts that we can't make with other processes. If we're looking at a bottom-up approach where the engineer or the designer or the or the marketing person is looking at parts that can't be made in another way because we want to make unique hearing aids, we want to make unique dental things, uh, we want to make uh, you know, unique applications that don't exist. We want to make the best rocket engine possible and we just want 1% extra performance because that's just going to be the be-all end-all for us. Or we just want to save that 100 grams on a satellite. So to me, that is the kind of stuff that I want to be doing. I mean, to just isotropy in a, in a sense is just giving us a confidence about making all the things. And you know, I just don't believe we're going to make all the things. I just don't think they're the, 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 that we're going to be doing that. So, so that's kind of my way of looking at it. If you ask these processes, I think Rise is really interesting for kind of a for in and of itself as a technology to combine. You know, if they could do color at one point. Uh, uh, in a really reliable way, really kind of more of a, a, a full color kind of way, it'd be really exciting. And to me, you know, the idea of uh, just the, the, the labeling quality and using that labeling quality for certain parts that is uh, that are you know that are just like good for that, I think that's exciting. I think the ascension thing, uh, apart from the fact that there's like a huge uh, problem with them, I think about the the patent thing. Yeah, we haven't written anything about this on 3dprint.com because it's just a legal battle between two people, Jable and, and them, uh, Jable and Essentium. And we just like, don't really like to get involved in that. But that yeah. to me is a really problematic thing for if you're going to be investing in that technology. And that's a really problematic thing if you're going to be doing that. And, you know, I like Essentium, the idea is really exciting, but I think it does limit you because you need really special materials that only yeah. will be nano-filled, let's say essentially, uh, materials they will only work uh, for certain applications. Now, and you know, having some material like that, like uh, FDA cleared or whatever like that, is going to be impossible. You know, going to like a lighting company and saying, "Hey, we've got this super special polycarbonate that only we have in the whole world." They're going to be like, "Go away!" <laughs> Fortify is going to have that same challenge too. Where yeah. Fortify, yeah. so Essentium, by the way, kind of like I'm going to super simplify. Like, think, uh, yeah. you know, you put metal in a in a microwave, right? Yeah. And you, yeah. it creates heat. And Essentium essentially has nanoparticles in their material. Yeah. That creates yeah. a, a heat effect, uh, creating a better fusion on that Z layer. Yeah. Fortify uh, has, uh, again, like nano features within the material. So you're running that specialized material problem, uh, yeah. issue, but it's still kind of neat because they're using magnetic fields and essentially saying, I could change the alignment of these yeah. you know, linear magnetic particles 
and make them so that they are vertically aligned, creating a stiffening effect in the Z direction. Or I could even like alternate it based off what type of performance property. So say you are building like a, uh, for example, something that has more of a uh, mesh-like lattice feature. Maybe you want to have those uh, um, those uh, I don't want to call them filaments, but those those uh, linear features going in the direction of the mesh that kind of zigzags up, and so like more like a Z yeah. state shape. So, so to me, those some... are like those are really exciting technologies. For if you would say you'd want to work for a designer making new generation headphones. So say we have a headphone startup, we're going to make it. Then all of a sudden, like, wait a minute, can we do a magnetic? Can we do you know? Can we make these parts look better and stuff? Although on both those, I'm not truly deeply madly in love with the parts I've seen so far, huh? I'm like, uh, really? So proof, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so, and then I'm thinking, so I'm thinking if you are work with like a new designer on a new application and thinking completely differently, I think we can come up with some really super exciting stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, weekly magnetic parts or, or parts that are stronger in a particular direction only on, uh, you know, certain temperature, whatever, right? But yes. if, if I'm trying to shoehorn that into some guy's production process, uh, like in some kind of like Six Sigma type thing, forget it. I mean, like they're, they're going to be like, go away. They're, they're like, we have fibers in these parts. What are these fibers? Oh, they're nano size. Oh, so what happens if you inhale them? Uh, uh, we don't know. We know that if it's carbon nanotubes, that we, it's problematic. But these particular ones, oh, there's not enough of them in the world for us to test them. So, so. I see any kind of approval industry is problematic and I, any kind of shoehorning this and existing process is being problematic. Yeah. But then, so to them, to me, it's, it's if they can get the business development to make the new products, right, then I think it's going to be exciting, right? Uh, and otherwise, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, I, I just think it's going to be too hard for them to do this. I think there may be some pivot models too, uh, but I, I, I mean, I, again, I'm always excited to see material developments because usually it's the answer is all of it or none of it at all uh, with new technologies yeah. where they, they get tend to get absorbed, uh, amalgamized, hybridized, and uh, and you know I know even like Essentia's platform, I think some of their other posts uh, beyond just the material itself is you know beautiful um, linear systems, very high speed, you know, very mm -hmm. very controlled uh, environment. So even like the speed there can be exciting. And just the last thing I wanted to touch on when we talk about isotropic, and it's something that when you think about it, you're like, oh, it's a, you know, that makes sense too, is why I think, why I think in layers in the first place. So we're always growing stuff in, in essentially a planar direction. So those layers are a cross-section plane of that part. And uh, when you look at uh, contouring, so um, directed energy deposition, uh, you mm -hmm. know, a good example of that, optimic uh, beam, like these, these, uh, um, these folks are able to in a multi-axis contour, essentially deposit mm. material and fuse it on spot. Uh, mm. and, and you are able, again, to create a geometry that may not have those inherent weaknesses in one single layer. So you, yeah. you're not, it, I wouldn't say isotropic, but I will say it is, it's something that kind of meets you in the middle. And uh, I, I know, I think we've seen the, some, some of that with the FDM style yeah. uh, printers too, where it kind of goes uh, uh, contouring. In fact, I want to see Mark Forge printers with a, you know, fixed axis, uh, fifth axis yeah. rotary tape. Oh, that'd be like, amazing. I want to uh, see that. Yeah. You know. cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's amazing. I think also what I think I like about non-planar on the one hand, so people are developing uh, like like nozzles and software for non-planar. And also just looking at these contouring nozzles, we're using like a, yeah, uh, a motion stage coupled with a robot arm, like five, six axis, whatever, robot arm. I think that is exciting to me in the bioprinting application. The idea, everyone's always like, we put it in the printer. And I'm like, well, how do we get it on the body or in the body? 
Uh, and to me, having this arm there and, and being able to print all these contour type prints is really exciting in bioprinting because of that, because we can print in the person or on them. And and I just love the idea that, that, that we're going to be able to, you know, print in place, right? And print things in place in a non-planar kind of thing. Like imagine like on a pipe in an oil and gas installation, you can rejuvenate the material with DED, for example, mm -hmm. in situ, yeah. for example. That would be super exciting to be able to do that in that location, stop and print in place and add things to that, like a sensor, then print on top of it, right? Things you can do uh, with certain processes. Like that to me is, is, is uh, you know, I, th I think that, that that's a really exciting kind of like way in this, in this, yeah, it's a new development. I think it's nice that in the beginning, like, or not in the beginning, like 2008, nine, whatever, people were looking at a lot of FDM styles and they were looking at rotating platforms and the arm moving in this way and all this. And that kind of stopped and we got stuck with this gantry kind of platform for fdm and gantry moving yep. head you know we had some h bot right but generally it was just gantry moving head and everything was like off of the ultimaker kind of like or the maker bot reference platform and then the Prusa i3 and then you know it was just everyone was copying those things and then we had the printer bot simple that was doing a little bit different but just generally yeah we kind of stopped our experimentation a bit and I think it would be really exciting to see people say like, hey guys, is this gantry system really the good idea? Like my uh, a paradigm I came up with at one point for the concrete printing was just like, well, I have a little car that drives around with the printer on it, right? The arm. And is that better than making a gigantic thing? It was like 10 by 10 meters or something. It's, you know, which is cheaper. I don't know. We should experiment with that, you know, before we just all settle on these boxes. Yeah. I was going to say, um, one of these things that they could lead into, which is yeah. uh, given uh, environmental concerns and everything that's happening to, to our planet right now is like, what are the, we're still in a replace economy. Like we're still in a, it's broke replace. And uh, some of these, like getting outside of the box, getting outside of the gantry can help build us into a world where a repair economy is more um, acceptable and, and maybe additive can help uh, usher in and make that market available. Like even, even repairs in space, repairs in uh, underwater remote, uh, um, you know, power and internet lines. I mean, this, that economy uh, is it's really powerful to take a look at. That's bye -bye definitely what I, I agree with as well, is that, uh, I mean, you know, I love using the 3Doodler, for example, my mm -hmm. products to repair things. And I think that all of this technology could help us to transition into a repair economy versus a replace economy, as you say, that we do now, because it is quite ridiculous on that one. Yeah, I, I hope when I do my 3D printing trends of 2021 for next year, we start talking about recyclable materials more. Uh, yeah. that, is, that is a completely different topic, but it's something that has frustrated me for over a decade is the recyclability of most raw materials that we use in additive manufacturing isn't really there. And, uh, right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you lose like ABS, you can recycle seven some odd times before it starts becoming just too flaky and, and it's not good material anymore pla is really tricky to like reform back into something so yeah. we, we do need to find a material that we can use that has all these benefits but it's it's going to require quite some more engineering on the polymer sides i think before yeah. we can get there i i would love to replace uh so pa 2200 uh or you know when you think white nylon 12 that you run yep. in hp multi-chip fusion platforms and eos uh platforms and you know, 3d system platforms they have their duraform all this stuff is the base material like this this nylon 12 resin and 
And again, where this is a separate topic, but I would love to replace that with something recyclable because half the time these parts that are made, like especially on these onesies, twosies, are for a timestamp. Like they, they have a limited use before uh, they're you know done with the prototyping phase. And I would love to throw this in a recycle bin at the very least uh, and go there. I mean, but, Jarvis uh, and I often talked about the dream of printing something and then being like, nah, I don't need this. And then having like a shredder or something yeah, yeah. next to the machine that you throw it into, yeah. which it then goes back into the machine to print the next thing. Yeah. Well, and actually, I think that's a good segue uh, to uh, because I, you know, we we have a couple more trends, but I mean, yeah. let's talk about materials. Let's talk there about uh, the the cool new things that are going out with uh, new materials and uh, processes uh, for those materials. So, polymer. Yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, polymers. I mean, I think in polymers, you know, we're getting people to actually. Well, okay. Everybody's saying they 3D print peak. Um, if you're a few people actually doing it, it's almost impossible on SLS. Or no, sorry. It's difficult on SLS. It's very difficult on FDM as well. And a lot of people are just printing like brown sugar type of stuff. But the excitement around peak, uh, other PEAK family materials and PEC, and now the new availability of PEC materials is very exciting, I think. It gives you a lot of high performance, real high performance window with really high continuous service temperatures, really high kind of resistance to a lot of different chemicals. Uh, and we've been using like uh, Ultem, like a PI for a long time. Uh, and now, you know, you know, you're seeing much more, many more PEC parts, for example, in aerospace and, and, uh, and space applications, peak parts in, in the body as well as PEC parts in the body. Uh, and I think that's a really, really exciting thing. And it's still a frontier because it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to do. Uh, not getting the right kind of spotting, not getting getting the right crystallization, getting uh, warping and all that kind of thing. I think that's, uh, to me, uh, the fact that we have these uh, high performance materials uh, means that we need better printers. Well, yeah, I do, I do think that uh, better adoption of uh, PEAK and PEC uh, um, paving the way into uh, either the FDM style printers um, as well as powder bed fusion styles is really important. I actually have found like packets tend to be tend to be a little bit more process friendly, uh, and peak is very very stubborn. Uh, I can tell you my personal life. I've used uh, peak one time uh, via SLS for a project where the temperature just needed it. There was no other way, and PEC was not commercialized yet. So PEC was like calling up, "Hey, can I use your material?" And they're like, "Nope." And I'm like, "Great, all right, peak it is," because that's when the hundreds just came out. So like when I used that, there was only two machines in the U.S. that could run peak. Uh, so, um, and actually, I was I was uh, part of, or I was right at the tail end of a team that was actually doing the original developments there, and they actually ended up moving to Paramount Industries, which was about by 3D Systems, and that's where the P800 came out of was uh, basically hacking together some old school center stations to start uh, running these advanced polymers. Uh, so just talking on those are thermosets or therm, you know thermopolymers thermoset materials, but there's even some really cool stuff like I'm liking these reaction polymers. Like so, SLA is uh, typically a single cure process. I'm I'm uh, um, using a UV light and I'm doing a photo cure. And same thing with multi jet poly jet materials. Uh, carbon 3D. Uh, so the technology is cool with that continuous process, but the cooler thing is probably those materials because. They're post-activated, uh, and we were talking about using Ultim, using PEI as a um, great high-temp material. And I, I print a ton of Ultim. Like uh, we, uh, it's a very standard material for Fortis FDM machines, and we have armies of machines that are printing this uh, this material out. But then you get to the small stuff, 
and you get to like someone wants to print out something that's basically the shape of a header on a circuit board and printing an fdm is like drawing with a crayon you just can't get those details in yeah and you also don't have the ceiling property so if you want to do like a high temperature microfluidic or something it it, it kind of stinks like you you might as well hand model this part uh where dls has some materials like their uh signed ester um the so the ce that prints like an sla and is kind of in a green state then goes through essentially a 12-hour cycled post-thermal cure to activate these inherent properties in it that replace the the weaker properties of like a sla print and give it this higher end use um like higher tensile strength uh extremely high heat resistance actually it's actually a higher heat heat deflection than ultim 1010 which is really interesting and you can print with the detail resolution that sla will come out of and i'm happy to see that because i've tried to print headers in ultim you know you know three four years ago and uh you have too many detail problems too many process problems that you can really never make the customer happy with what they're looking for so being able to actually get details and have extremely high temperatures can be done with some of these new polymers uh, that mimic that. And carbon, of course, is also known for making stuff that activates like a urethane. So like those elastomeric polyurethanes, those urethane-based silicones, um, rigid and flexible polyurethanes, it's all part of their line. But again, it's a secondary process that activates something that was 3D printed to give it more of a end use state. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited because it's accessible. Again, it's it's 3D. It is something you can get today. Like if you have money, you could go buy a part and get a part made in this this material today. I think right on the horizon, like next year, I'm going to start seeing some more true silicones, some more ceramics as well. And I'm not sure if you guys have had some like eyes on those platforms, but uh, those are the other materials. I'm like, why don't we have this yet? You know, like why can't yeah. I just order this and. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very excited about those. And a lot of those can be uh, SLA based from their from the infrastructure, but I've also seen other processes uh, make stuff like uh, like silicones. Well, I'd be very excited to start printing some silicone stuff. Yeah, I think silicone is going to like really open our application field a lot. It's going to really do a lot for medical, really a lot for, for, for functional parts like shoe soles and stuff like that. I think that's really exciting. Is there anyone doing any and like impregnated um, stuff? Like, you know, you can, when you center metals, you can have them impregnated with a, a lubricant or something like that. Um, and I've, I haven't noticed or seen anyone doing that on the, the print side, or like if you wanted to make there's a people part. Trying, there's people trying to do high pressure annealing, so putting a part under pressure and annealing yeah. it at the same time. Uh, there's also infiltration. I did work on this like years ago. We're trying to we're trying to under pressure infiltrate like especially uh, polyamide parts or, or SLS parts which have an open surface structure. Trying to impl uh, infiltrate a material in that. And you can be as simple as coating it or putting it under very high pressure and trying to force all those holes to close uh, through a material. The problem is that depending on the the, uh, the shape of the part and, and the orientation, all this kind of stuff, you can't really. It's 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 difficult to predict. Uh, you know, it's not like a hip where. You, know, you just throw so much force at it that, that, that yeah. you change it. So you can kind of get the same problem you have with like coloring SLS is like that it could sometimes maybe be darker on one side than the other if you don't do it properly. So, so yeah, there's, there's people working on that, mostly uh, not in a commercial way, but mostly in, in universities and stuff. Pro tip, by the way, if uh, if you want to make your SLS part a little bit stronger, especially flexually, uh, just dip it in water, hold it in water for about an hour. Uh, nylon actually likes a little bit of moisture and it actually will enhance the properties there. 
Uh, well, that one loves moisture. Yeah, and uh, I think yeah. you know, like going on these uh, these materials, kind of going from a different direction too. Like we have uh, um, stuff like uh, Nano Dimension and uh, yeah. these these guys who are doing kind of revitalizing. I'm going to call it polyjet or you know material mm -hmm. jetting uh, technology where. Uh, if you're not familiar with polyjet, uh, you know you're you're basically depositing micro droplets of material A, um, like an inkjet printer, and you're curing at the same time as as a platform is moving back and forth, and you kind of start building on top. But what's neat is because you're printing like an inkjet, uh, you could also have a material B and C and D uh, for this. So you've seen stuff like uh, Stratasys polyjet has moved from you know two materials to now they have the you know j750 platforms which can do full color spectrum and including different durometers but i'm still really excited or actually i'm more excited about yeah pcbs uh can i do something that yeah. acts like r4 fr7 and add a conductive layer to it can i can i make my traces not layer by layer can i actually make my traces and vias like if i need a certain uh so for example when you're putting a uh, a certain electrical current through sometimes you need a certain thickness of that, that wire and cable and can i print that thickness in a th three dimensions to make it a round versus a like like or a little wire board. yeah or a flexi board or something like that yeah i'm excited so i, I know max you wanted to talk about that. i do I, i'm very excited about the possibilities of that as well as what it could lead to in the future of a complete thing having yeah. a machine that can Print a PCB, you have an SMT machine that puts the chips and whatnots and solders it, and then another robot arm that then puts it into a 3D part that was just printed and like makes a motor, you know, because you, know, you can do PCB motors now. Um, so you could do something like make a little robot that is like pops out the other end from your design to finish, completed with software loaded into the whole thing. And that I find is really cool. But just doing a PCB for testing is a huge advantage because the amount of time, I know you can get PCBs in a day if you pay a good amount of money and stuff like that, but it's just so much easier if you can print it. And then as you said, if you can do it in 3D, there is some wacky fun stuff that we could start trying that just yeah. wasn't possible in any other format. Again, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, 3D printing trends 2022, guys, is gonna be talking about software supporting 3D printing uh, electronics in the three-dimensional space. Because even though, like everything, if you're using Eagle or whatever you're using to actually uh, create your uh, print circuit board design, they live in the world of flat. They live in the world world of layers. And what mm -hmm. happens when you unleash that? There's not technology right now that helps there, so. Right. <laughs> right aerosol jet, you could do it. Yeah. You could do it with aerosol jet, with, uh, mm -hmm. with the lens and aerosol jet, maybe both of those, you could maybe do something like that. Yeah. Mounted on a uh, mounted on a CNC uh, kind of movable thing. Like then you can print. Yeah, Enscript. Oh god, I love Enscript. I love Enscript. Yeah. So that kind of idea. Then you can you can yeah you can do it in three dimension or you can do contour circuit contour on thing. You know, and uh, it's always really exciting to figure out like who would want to do that like print circuits on like all sorts of three dimensional objects. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Faraday cages. I mean, I've I've yeah. been I've I do a lot of uh, uh, e nickel plating or nickel plating of three uh, D printed parts uh, SLS and SLA at Zometry. And the reason why, primarily the reason why, is EMI shielding. Um, 
The yeah. secondary reason is stiffening. Like it often makes parts extremely durable uh, by putting that uh, about four to six thou of nickel plating, uh, depending on your application. Um, but if you were, if that was more simplified as a deposition, it could be really exciting uh, or to do. And again, this comes down to yes, it exists. But how can you turn it from an a engineering effort where you have to kind of match everything together and turn it into a process as a platform? Like, and and like, what are those steps needed? Hey, speaking of that, do you guys want to move into hybrids? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's move into what the hybrid systems are and what do they look like? And. Uh, I mean, what's exciting you guys in hybrid? So I ha I'm opinionated because I work in both the CNC machining market, I work in injection molding market, and I work in uh, 3D printing. So I don't want to uh, I don't want to shed my opinions first. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no. It's to me, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense because you're using a much more expensive machine to do a really cheaper machining operation of a machine you probably already own. Right. I don't understand this. I, I understand this in like if you're on Mars or something. Right. But I, just on Earth, you probably already have some mill that you bought 20 years ago, which is just fine. Some vertical machining station. It can do this work. It's fine. It's paid already. You've got uh, Juan Pablo, who's fucking amazing with that thing. Right. And then and then now all of a sudden we're going to integrate it. Now, automating this process is very interesting, but you could also do that on your, your on some of the other equipment as well. I just I just don't understand taking a really expensive machine and getting it to, for some of its run hours, from its really precious hours, to getting it to done this really cheap machining operation. To me, I always look at like, uh, you know, I'm really a big fan of this profit velocity model. I'm trying to figure out how much money can I make with my 3D printer per minute? I think that is the way we should always look at profitability. I don't think net, I think net contribution margin is stupid. And I just think that, that, that we should look at it and what can I do per minute? And we know that's important with nesting. We know that's important with what types of parts you put where. And I'm thinking, it just doesn't make sense to me to then say, there's one machine. Yeah, I don't have to touch it. That's wonderful. I think it's technologically really exciting. But then we're going to keep it the part in there for another couple of hours where it's being milled or something? Come on. It just, it just to me, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. And you're, you're forgetting about op two, three, four, and 5, uh, usually, on these, because you're, yeah. you're typically running in a directional path. Uh, um, and even when you're doing something like, you know, like I, I've seen Mazex, uh, where they're using D plus, plus machine. By the way, I love Mazex. If I have a Mazex machine, I'm really happy. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, but yeah, the combination, it's not quite mature. And I think it's very application specific. So you're, you're absolutely right. Zometry, no. like we are pumping out parts, right? Like, so like you, you order, um, you know, we get to instant quote, you get that lead time, you press order, you get those parts, you know, in three days. And uh, all these things, again, uh, especially when you're doing this, these early stage hybrid machines, they require almost an engineering design effort beforehand. How am I holding this? What's my, like, what's my fixed frame? What's my second ops? What type of finish am I trying to get for? Now, the goals, though, are, are noble, right? So the goal is I know my part performance better with a smooth surface finish. Right. They, they will. And uh, it just has to do with... Uh, um, you know, those inconsistent gaps can actually cause stress points, which can cause a crack or failure. Uh, that's often unpredictable if you don't have a smooth surface finish. Uh, I also know that I can do some cool freeform stuff uh, with 3D printing. So how can right. I combine? And I, and I think the effort is very cool, but I think it's something that, to, to your point, we need to evolve on. Um, I'm thinking about the Metsura Lumix. Uh, mm -hmm. it is a, it's probably one of the more impressive technologies, but it's also something like where I I would not necessarily buy it as a service. Yeah, as but if a I'm a mold guy, 
old company yeah. and I'm doing essentially like, uh, you know, complex inserts day in, day out. This yeah. may be a very good uh, time save for this complex where I'd have to do like super deep uh, um, plunge EDMs to get these features. Uh, this could be a really, really great technology. But just understand that when I press print and say my mold cavity has a three inch depth to it and I have relative complexity, I'm I'm putting something that is thermally like is a dense part, which I never want to do in DMLS in the first place. But I'm taking a dense dense feature part, and I'm all and I'm putting it in my uh, DMLS platform for sometimes a hundred plus hours, and and I am I'm putting every every hour is an hour of risk in in metal metal laser sintering. And again, like also I I tell people if you're talking about designing for additive, I'm like please don't print me a hockey puck. But when you're doing mold inserts and mold cavities, even when you're adding that uh, those uh, conformal cooling channels, a lot of times you're printing hockey pucks. You're printing some really, uh, um, really thick materials. Uh, Merging steel tends to be a little bit more tame than, say, something you know, some other materials out there. But it's still something to be very considered about, and and uh, and you have to have that technician full time working on the machine. So from price justification, you need to make sure that you are not just buying the machine, you know, thinking about the material, but you're thinking about your labor and the entering effort before and after that, uh, that to get it, get the full throughput out. It's, it's, I'm, I'm excited, uh, again, uh, 3d printing trends for 2024, uh, hybridize, <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, what about something more down to earth? So like you think, uh, like Mark Forge, uh, so, yeah. uh, working on, uh, composites building, uh, secondary, it's not quite a hybrid, but it is kind of hybrid. It's 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 basically throwing in a secondary, like a foreign material within the build itself. Like I, it, what's nice is Markforge is it's approachable. Um, I to my to my point earlier, I would love to have it on a turntable with a rotary axis uh, because I think I, I've never done a carbon fiber layup in my life where I've made it flat. You know, I'm usually making a contour panel and taking advantage of contouring those grains to give mm -hmm. uh, added strength to it. But uh, what's nice right now is it's, it exists. Like it, I can get a machine and start printing parts with a carbon uh, fiber or Kevlar reinforcement right now. Uh, and I think that's pretty exciting. But is it effective? Like, I, or is it, you know what I mean? Or is it just like, hey, I'm doing it in carbon fiber. But does it actually have the strength additive properties that you would expect from like a traditional carbon weave? Uh, Not a layup. And, yeah. and, uh, so here's, here's where it falls short, or from, from my experience with it. Um, so it is very stiff on the planar direction, right? Uh, so like, uh, because you're working, you're building still in layers and you're, build, you're, you're uh, supporting this in the plane. Uh, so you can get high levels of stiffness in this kind of XY direction. Uh, uh, that being said, the stiffness is is bound by those those kind of infill layers of Kevlar. So I know uh, someone who has a Mark Forge and was really excited about making a very small part in Mark Forge. Because you you still have a outer wall of that nylon, even with their onyx material, the nylon chop, uh, nylon's compressible. So right. if I make a very very small part, the reinforcement aspect of it uh, has very little effect because a lot of it is still like the squishy outer surface. But the larger the part is on the platform, or like you know parts that are about the size of my hand, or like you know uh, you know banana for scale, right? Uh, uh, those are probably the best area of application uh, to get the the. Uh, mixed use of uh, ease of printing plus uh, high high strength reinforcement. Yeah. And what I like about Mark Forge is that they're a software company, 
and mm -hmm. and that we were talking earlier about software they are drenched with the software thing and i think it it, it, it was necessary for the complexity of the technology uh but their, their combination being wanting to do automotive level stuff and and wanting to do software is really really powerful it makes i think a lot of their printers very very powerful i like the idea it's never going to be hand layout but i like the 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 extra you know, I think there's there's not enough, not, there hasn't been enough investment by material companies in that arena and saying, wait, what kind of uh, GFCF, whatever stuff can we put through this? And, and how can we change the properties of this part in the same way that, that other technologies have maybe? Because, yeah. uh, you know, they just, they, they maybe haven't been able to convince them of like the volume or something like that. Or Because I think it would be, could be potentially really exciting to, to do more work on, on what these reinforced polymers are. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you wanted higher strength, you're going to look a little bit more towards a, impossible objects and, and other companies like that to, to do more of the kind of more hand layup like applications. What yeah. to me is exciting about MarkForge is that the software works really well. The machines tend to work really well. First gen, not so much, but afterwards, yes. Um, but and 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 what they're doing is really exciting. And the development of getting an integrated solution out the door is really exciting. That to me, yeah, that that, that to me, yeah, makes it makes it a really you know, good package overall, I think. If I were, uh, you know, if I were uh, running an engineering team and uh, so, like, I, I came from a product development environment, you know, I'd, I'd probably actually would have a Mark Forge machine uh, in my um, in my shop or in my lab or on my desk uh, just because it is, it's versatile. And to your, to your point, like, is it is it a milled aluminum? No. Is it, uh, you know, layup composite? No. But is it easy and can I get it to good right. enough? Yeah. And... And so it's uh, and and I, it may not even be for like, hey, I got a customer good that I want to show you all, show off what the housing looks like. I may actually be using it for something else internally. Um, I had the advantage when I worked in product development. We happen to have our own SLS machine, so I was, I was spoiled as hell. And there's like <laughs> white white parts everywhere uh, on on our assembly line uh, because I just made some. I saw someone like holding a screwdriver awkwardly. I'm like, let me make a fixture for you. I saw someone holding some washers. I'm like, I'm gonna make a fixture for that. And I just throw in the next next day's print. And that's kind of where the where this process could be in is it's a lot less maintenance than an SLS machine for sure. Wow. Uh, if you're an SLS SLS operator, you're you're actually a maid. Like what yeah. what do you do all that? You're you're vacuuming. Vacuuming. Yeah. 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 Have you seen so, our really amazing nil fisk? It's amazing. <laughs> So, I mean, what are some of the other thoughts? Are there any predictions that you guys have uh, um, coming up? Like, is there anything like I, these are, I mean, for, again, given our discussion, overarching topics here, but uh, just want to see if, uh, if you see anything or had any thoughts on, on uh, these, uh, these predictions. Yeah, just integration. So software plus the printer, plus then what we see in Ultimaker with their air manager and the material storage. We're also seeing that mini factory, like companies looking at like, okay, let's, how does the filament stored? How is the air managed? How do we heat the chamber? So better, higher temperature FDM, which will mean make engineering materials like peaks accessible to, to, to people on the lab or in the, uh, in the factory. I think that's going to be a huge trend. And it's a huge threat, I think, to anyone trying to operate in the business marketplace. Because at one point, if you can do peak well, uh, you're going to be the cool guys printer and a company doesn't give a damn if it's like 20k or, uh, or 50k but if you tell them hey we we have uh you know air management on this thing and then we have uh, hvsc uh, and all this other stuff and carbon filters and stuff they're going to want that right so then you see that's going to really change a lot of people that are aiming for the business market people are going to say like wait a minute we're printing tpu is that dangerous yeah it could be 
Uh, we're printing nanotube, uh, carbon nanotubes. Oh, we could get cancer from that. So, yeah, we probably don't want that, right? So it's those kind of things I think are, are going to be a really exciting move. It's boring, but it's just more dialing in all the parts of the chain. Like, how do we store the material? How do we condition the material? Um, uh, you know, how do we kind of pre-dry the material to get it at a certain temperature uh, and, and a certain target humidity, right? So that, that to me is, is very, very exciting for the desktop operator and companies. I think we're going to see a lot more in, industrial companies and multinationals print stuff with like a robust type system or an in-time type system. I think that's going to be huge. Uh, SLA uh, on the desktop is going to take a huge thing. I think a, a lot of new materials are going to come out for that. Uh, there's still a lot of scope to reduce the price to about 30 bucks a kilo or whatever. Uh, there's also a lot of safety concerns with SLA in the hands of consumers. I'm really worried about that from a cancer uh, kind of perspective. And, and disposal. Disposal of SLA yeah. resins yeah. is horribly mismanaged right now on the, yeah. on the consumer marketplace. Yeah, nobody does it. it and there's there's also, the, I know a bunch of people that have these skin contact allergies from SLA machines, and I just don't want like some like school teacher somewhere or somebody to get that. I think it's a, so I think that's problematic. We need to worry about that. I think uh, generally, what I hope is more intuitive software. Like I still hope for one-click 3D printing. I just want, I just don't <laughs> want to do all this stuff. We're like screwdrivers and settings. I just don't care. If only there was and a company that offered all yeah. this. <laughs> where you could just upload a CAD file and they, they yeah, take yeah, care exactly, yeah. yeah, I started working from service, right? Happen though, right? With so, a professional yeah. network of thousands of manufacturers who uh, yeah. live and breathe. Uh, it's kind of what companies. I did like eleven years ago already. So yeah, this is this is my this is what we're, this is what we're doing already. Yeah. So yeah, so it's that, and I think uh, what I do hope is that we do go a little bit further with filled materials. Yeah, like mm -hmm. for example, like changing directionality and and changing the properties of these materials. Um. And I hope we start thinking of like, uh, yeah, recycling systems. That's more of a hope thing. We talked about this before. I would love that to, to work. 3Diva has something that works, but I would love that to be something that was in, available in every lab. Uh, I think that, that's near term. That's my trend. Uh, uh, metals, I think, I think we're going to more integrated uh, solutions, uh, more complex solutions, intermetallics. A lot more people actually able to print like super alloys and, and moving into those more high performance materials uh, before moving into intermetallics, of course. And then uh, things like, for example, bulk metallic glasses uh, and uh, and then in combination or uh, you know, on top of that, hopefully more ceramics. Like what you're seeing as well, I think. I think besides Litos and a couple of niche players, we're seeing that these kind of uh, materials are really restricted to us. I'm really excited about Nanoway or something that kind of give you like it's kind of like the steel ultra fuse filament bsf but then for ceramics and that yeah. to me it has the same problems right um but but to me that could get anyone in a desktop environment to print ceramics and that's super exciting so what i also hope would happen is debinding and uh and <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh debinding and all these other really fun stuff to do at home for debining and sintering to become more accessible and the very equipment for that because that would really expand the makeable in terms of well some limited geometries for for metal and some limited geometries for ceramics and that would really yeah give a huge push to, to the types of materials we could be making and the performance we could be getting uh from those materials i'm also excited as i said before about the 3d printing pcbs or the ability yeah. to create a three-dimensional pcb and as we referenced there's just a lot that could be done there yeah. Yeah. 
I'm always, I'm always looking at at zometry. I mean, we're always looking at it, exactly what you guys are talking about. What is what's next? What are our customers demanding? And how can we work to make it a commodity? A lot of the technologies that we're offering now at like extremely economical rates, actually, just even five years ago, were uh, were like minimum minimum order quantity, like minimum order size of two hundred fifty dollars to make you know a thimble, you know, just because I need to get these machines running. And now we're because we're distributing these manufacturings and we're distributing like instead of thinking of it as wait one person's jobs, you know, Zomtree's essentially giving a flood of jobs per day, especially on the additive. Uh, marketplace, you start thinking about what's the rental space on my SLA, what's the rental space on my SLS, and it becomes much more of a commodity. So bringing some of these into uh, an accessibility standpoint, like so for example, debinding all these complicated processes may stay on the service side and sometimes should because of safety yeah. concerns and just really powerful misuse. Like, uh, you know, SLA resin will not cure if you throw it in the trash can. It'll stay there forever and pollute the earth. Like, you know, there's yep. there's stuff that uh, it's just kind of like taken for granted with some of these technologies until we have a better way and uh, an economical way of handling them. Um, you know, you have uh, on-demand services like Zometry that can that can help that out. And uh, meanwhile, I'm also eyeing applications, like you said, with uh, desktops, uh, you know, Form Labs, uh, uh, Mark Forge, some of these uh, desktop printers out there because their quality is getting great. And yeah. if they if they could do quality repeatability, and again, give me a sheet that says this is the minimum guarantee that I can give as a business to my customer saying this is what you should expect and plan for, uh, then all of a sudden you have, um, oh, and redundancy, right? right. Uh, then then all of a sudden you have this, you know, something ripe for the marketplace model. And that's, that's really exciting. Cool. Well, right. thank you very much for joining us, Greg. As always, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And, awesome. Uh, yeah, Joris, you want to sign us yeah, out? Thanks, guys. I think this was a really exciting episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. And uh, thank you very much to Maxwell Vogue. Thank you. And uh, thank you as well for Greg Pulse. And uh, again, give us feedback and uh, ideas on what we should be talking about. And thanks a bunch for, for, for listening to the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.